Let's talk now about the tent cities in Vancouver and Victoria. The government taking action now to shut them down, move people into hotel rooms. Have a listen to this story from Global News reporter Nadia Stewart. The province is offering temporary shelter to those living in homeless camps in Vancouver and Victoria. A public safety order issued under the Emergency Program Act means all residents must be cleared out by early May, all in an effort to limit the risk of a COVID-19 outbreak in communities where self-isolation is near impossible. We are dealing with one public health emergency on top of another, a pandemic that is unprecedented in our time, and an achingly long fentanyl poisoning crisis. Okay, that last voice you you heard there, Judy Darcy, B.C. Cabinet Minister. Let's talk to her colleague now, Shane Simpson, B.C.'s Minister of Social Development. Minister, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, it's great to be with you, Mike. Okay, how is this going to work? I know you you grew up on the downtown east side. You've been seeing some of this poverty up close all your life. Have you ever seen it this bad? When you take a look at those homeless camps, man, they are getting bigger. It's terrible. No, I, I think that's a fair point. I've kind of watched, particularly over the last 20 years or so, a deterioration in the downtown east side, and it's you know reflected. You can see it on Hastings Street if you go down Hastings. Uh, you can see it, obviously, Oppenheimer and how that's evolved over time. So it's challenging, and it's continued to get more challenging uh, uh, even with some of the best efforts, I think of of a variety of governments at different levels, but it's been it's been really a challenge. Uh, let's talk about how you want to make it better. Tell me about this plan to move people into hotel rooms. How is this going to work? Well, uh, we're in there now. Um, we have uh, health workers there. Uh, we have peer support, i.e., people from the community uh, who are engaged. Specialists from my ministry. We're doing one-on-one evaluations of people for their health and social needs, their preferences, uh, figuring out kind of how their networks work uh, with other people in the community. And we'll be looking to move 15, 20 people a day uh, into the uh, secure accommodations that we have. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll evaluate that. And then I expect we'll need to uh, take further steps following that. But certainly we, our plan is to have everybody moved and out of these sites well before the end of May. Why is the action being taken now? I mean, that Oppenheimer Park camp has been open for like a year and a half, and people have been pleading for something to be done. Why, why is it happening now? Well, um, obviously, everything has been exacerbated by COVID-19, which, you know, has, has turned the world upside down, uh, including here in British Columbia in many ways. You'll also know that um, the park, Oppenheimer Park, where it's located, is under the jurisdiction of the Vancouver Park Board. The park board and the city have been trying to resolve this between them. Uh, for whatever reason, they haven't been able to do that. We're in this circumstance. Uh, we saw the need to act. And because of the Emergency Program Act and where we're at on emergency measures, we were able to uh, uh, invoke that uh, um, act uh, to take, uh, take control of the site uh, and move in the way that we're moving now. Speaking to BC Social Development Minister Shane Simpson, what if people refuse to leave the camps? Well, we're pretty hopeful that the vast majority of people will go. Uh, nobody's being forced into housing, but it is our intention to move people out of the park, to close Oppenheimer down, return it to the park board for restoration as a park site. Um, after a couple of weeks from now, as we've seen how we're doing and we're evaluating every day, 
Um, we'll look at how we support people uh, who don't want to go indoors and what that might mean. Um, and we're doing that work now. Part of what's important, and we know who's in the park, and we have a good sense of that, is talking one-on-one with all of those people in the park about what they want, what they don't want, what their conditions are. And we'll evaluate uh, what will likely be, uh, we hope, just a small group of people who don't want to go inside in the way that we're offering. Are you going to have enough people and staff to help these people you talked about? It's not just going to be warehousing people in unused hotel rooms, but you're going to have staff. Do you have enough staff? Because when I talk to the social service agencies in Victoria and Vancouver, they're having trouble right now keeping people on the job because people don't want to come into work. They're afraid of getting this virus. Yeah, uh, we're feeling pretty confident about that. Some of the organizations that are managing and will be managing these facilities, and they'll manage it like other supported housing that uh, that we uh, we provide. Uh, we'll have people there. We'll be able to provide daily meals to people, primary health care, i.e. doctors and nurse practitioners there, uh, support them around mental health and addiction issues, 24-7 staffing in the facilities, security, laundry, cleaning. Um, we're confident we have uh, the resources to do that. We've been preparing for a couple of weeks, um, and the early, the first few people have been moving in, obviously, over the last day or so, um, and we're confident that, that we can address that. Speaking of people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol, I noted that your announcement noted that people will be given access to prescription alternatives. What, what does that mean? Is the government going to be providing people with free drugs and alcohol? Well, and that is, in fact, uh, we are providing prescription alternatives to that. You'll know the federal government provided additional authority to do that. Uh, the BC Center for Substance Use has developed the guidelines and the protocols for how that will occur. Um, it is a prescription model, so we have health uh, officials from Vancouver Coastal Health and from Island Health in the case of uh uh, of Pandora and Topaz. They're in, they're meeting with people, they're talking about their needs, um, and then issuing the prescriptions uh, based on what they learn and and, uh, and their medical expertise. And yes, for, there will pres- be that available. Prescriptions for what? So people are going to get prescription heroin or prescription opioids well, or prescription, get prescription alcohol? Alternatives to yeah. deal with, uh, to replace uh, illegal drug supply. Okay, isn't it? Wouldn't it be better to get people? Does that make just uh, pro- propagate the problem? Uh, should you be better off getting people into into therapy and services to get them off drugs and alcohol? And I think ultimately that has to be the goal, but you don't flip that switch overnight. Uh, and right now we're looking at how we uh, isolate people that need to be isolated, how we support people in the short term, how we get people away from a drug supply that is becoming an illegal drug supply that's becoming a increasingly risky uh, because it's the supply chain for that is uh, slowed down. Uh, so at this point, it's how do we keep people right. um, safe? And there's no doubt that the long-term objective has to be to uh, create opportunities for people to get well. Minister, you're already getting some flack from people who think this plan doesn't go far enough. Have a listen to this uh, report here from Global News very briefly here. You're going to hear the voices of some people pleading for more assistance here. There's a lot more people that are vulnerable than Justin Oppenheimer. TJ says his father is too scared to sleep out on the streets, but is no less in need of a room. He and others say this plan is about housing the most visible, not the most vulnerable. My son died three weeks ago, alone in his room. 
we're looking for homes, not just not just grooms. We're looking for homes. All right, Minister, there's a lot of homeless people out there. According to the last uh, most re- a recent homeless count in Metro Vancouver, 3,600 homeless in Metro Vancouver. You've announced 324 spaces. That's less than 10%. What about the other people? Well, and uh, and what we're doing is we have the spaces, obviously, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in Vancouver. We have about 680 spaces, uh, some of it to thin out to do other things. But with this group, we need to address this issue in Oppenheimer, there is no question there's a much bigger challenge in front of us. Uh, we need to be sitting down with the service providers and the city and talking about what that longer-term solution looks like around housing, around other options. I should tell you, Mike, that in addition to what we're doing here, we're delivering meals into the private SROs. Uh, almost a couple of thousand people are going to get daily food. We're deep cleaning the private SROs to keep them as, as safe as we can, and we're investing more in uh, uh, in the community supports around peers and that uh, to create better opportunities for distancing. There's okay. nothing easy about this. It's a challenge, and we need to work on it moving forward. Minister, thank you for coming on. Thank you. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith as we continue to talk about the plan to house the homeless, shut down homeless encampments in Vancouver and Victoria. You heard my interview with Shane Simpson, uh, the minister responsible there. Is this plan going to work? Let's find out with some of the people on the front lines in this. Jeremy Hunka is the communications manager of the Union Gospel Mission in the downtown east side. Hey, Jeremy. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. And in Victoria, Grant McKenzie is with the Our Place Society. They do awesome work at the street level to help the poorest of the poor in Victoria. Grant, thank you for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, Jeremy, let me go to you first. What do you think of this plan? Is this going to work? There's a lot to like about this plan. Um, We're really relieved that action is being taken and getting people into housing, into spaces where they can distance themselves and have safety, not just from homelessness, but also COVID-19, is the right way to go. It's a good step. It's a great, um, we're, we're really happy that this is happening. I think the total number of spaces between, uh, between the pro- across the province right now is about 1,700 spaces. That's great. Um, at the same time, we note that there are many other people who need help, and we hope that this, uh, we need to keep going. We hope that this is not the end, but the beginning of, of good plans to protect the homeless, because people's lives are just on the line. Okay, tell me about what's going on in Victoria Grant, and whether you think this plan will be effective. I think a lot of people maybe think that this kind of really acute homeless problem is, is uh, the worst in the downtown east side, but man, Victoria is going through really difficult times here. Your thoughts? Yeah, we do. I mean, we have a, a very large tent city right on the boulevard in, in front of our place, um, probably 300 uh, people there. Um, and then we've got another big encampment at Topaz Park, and we've got some at Beacon Hill. And so, so there's a lot of people. And I think what this has done is it's really made the problem more visible, you know, which can have its positives that really... Um, a lot of people like to think that homelessness isn't in their area, but when they see everybody gathered all at once in these smaller encampments, they really see what a huge problem it is. Yeah. Um, as, as for the government's plan, I mean, I mean, it, it's optimistic, um, and it's going to face some some real challenges, but it's a good first step, uh, you know. And as the they were saying it's uh, we really have to look at this as only a first step. 
and really start to look at permanent solutions okay. to stop people having to live in tents. Okay, Jeremy Hunka, do you think it's going to be enough? I mean, we, as I mentioned to the minister there before the break that one of the more recent homeless counts in Metro Vancouver was around 3,600 people, right? In Metro Vancouver? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. At least 3,600 people. And we know that there's uh, hidden homelessness on top of that. Um, so, I mean, you do the math, and if you have 1,700 spaces across the province, but there's 7,000-plus who are homeless in B.C., uh, there's still uh, many more people that we need to help. And I've got to tell you, we're actually seeing homelessness really increase right now, not just in visibility, but in numbers as well. Um, and that happens that we're not just seeing that in the downtown east side. We're seeing it um, throughout the region of Metro Vancouver as well. We have uh, a mobile outreach unit that is seeing really notable increases of people who are who are homeless, who are outside, um, because some organizations um, have been forced to scale back and in some cases just close because of COVID-19. So there's more people without support and we're seeing more camps smaller camps, much smaller than Oppenheimer and Topaz Park, but we're seeing more camps um, further out as people just don't have places yeah. to get help. And that's, uh, that's really scary for people. How many, it's really how many scary camp, for us. How many camps are spread around Metro Vancouver? So, I, I mean, our, our outreach teams that go out there have identified anywhere from 25 to 35 camps. Wow. Um, and we think, that's not, we think that number is actually increasing right now because there's fewer places for them to go. So it's really critical when you have people outside who are not able to distance themselves socially that you, that you protect them from COVID-19. So we would support more. We need more housing. We need these yeah. more spaces. And the government's been doing that with modular housing. And that's been great. It's just the response that we're, that we're still at isn't enough to cover the need. And I know, okay. um, that I know it's a big challenge. We just want to see this keep going. Okay, Grant McKenzie, I know that there are, you mentioned one of the other homeless camps in Victoria and Beacon Hill Park, right? So, I mean, there are other, these, there are other camps out there besides the, the very high profile ones that are being targeted with, with this plant. Do you fear that some of these other plants will, or these other encampments will start to grow? Um, definitely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who, who, who don't want to move into a hotel with all the restrictions that implies. They don't want to be, in a shelter, and they'd rather be in a tent because the weather now supports that. Um, and we're seeing the same thing, a lot of little camps. I mean, people still want community, and so they're setting up their own little communities everywhere. You know, right now the bylaw says that they won't remove the tents, so people are now just popping up because there's a lot of people who are inadequately housed, you know, people who are couch surf- surfing, people who are living in their cars, and they're now starting to move into these smaller encampments. Guys, I want, to, I want to thank both of you for the tremendous work you both do and the organizations that you represent to help the, the poorest of the poor. Thank you very much for both of you for coming on. It's Jeremy Hunka from the Union Gospel Mission in Vancouver, Grant McKenzie, the Our Place Society in Victoria, talking about the plan to shut down these tent cities. Because when we get through the crisis and the global economy moves back to growth, It'll be more obvious than ever that the world needs a reliable, democratic, major source of energy. But that will only happen if our energy has access to world markets. In other words, it will only happen if we get pipelines built. 
All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. That, of course, is the voice of Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. They're making the case to keep building pipelines during this pandemic. The Trans Mountain Pipeline still being built today. Some construction activity has been scaled back to prevent the spread of COVID-19. But the company says the pipe is still going in the ground. Meanwhile, the Alberta government recently announced $1.5 billion to assist construction of the Keystone XL pipeline from Alberta to the United States. But that pipeline has now uh, received a setback when a judge in the United States uh, granted a or canceled a key permit there uh, as that project struggles to go forward. Is it time to keep building the pipeline during this pandemic or should construction be stopped until we get through this? Got a great panel for you once again. Peter McCartney is a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. Peter, thanks again for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Also on the line is Stuart Muir, Executive Director of Resource Works. Stuart, thank you. Morning, Mike. Peter, let me go to you first. Make the case for stopping construction of these pipelines while this pandemic is going on. Well, you know, we've seen global oil demand fall by about 10%, and it's very clear that that drop has precipitated catastrophe uh, for Alberta's oil sector, which is incredibly expensive, low-quality oil. And so... You know, there's a lot of people talking that this could be the peak of oil. They were already looking forward to it in the next uh, five to ten years, and this may have accelerated it. At the moment, we're building a pipeline when the product that we're planning to ship through it is actually we are having to pay people to take it from us. And we don't know that the world is just going to return back to the same way it was before. In fact, a lot of people think that we are. this will be a catalyst for the transition to renewable energy. And so, you know, I just... It, it doesn't make any sense to me to be spending $13 billion building a pipeline for a product that nobody wants at a time when we could be using that money for health care, for economic relief, and for uh, stimulus for green energy. Okay. Stuart Muir, what do you say to that? Well, I think the fundamentals of these projects remain intact because there is a demand for the heavy oil that we get from the Canadian oil sands. And that's going to be consistent into the future. Of course, right now we've been pounded down, just like the whole energy world. Um, oil sands are going to produce uh, profitably over $20 a barrel for some cases. Some are more expensive. There's a range there. But they're not going to let a few months of this uh, deter a, a long-term investment that is bringing the the export benefits to Canada that lets us pay for the health care and the education, things like that. You know, I don't know what the figure is today, but a few years ago, the pipeline industry talked about how every day of not having the Trans Mountain Pipeline was costing the Canadian economy $30 million. And maybe it's lower. Energy prices are lower. But, uh, you know, this, this is the kind of thing that investors in this, they're not uh, feeling nervous now because they're looking at the cost advantage that Canadian heavy oil has got in the Pacific markets, especially. And that's what Trans Mountain is about. Okay, Peter McCartney, you just you heard Stuart make the case there for continuing to build the pipelines. You also heard Alberta Premier Jason Kenney saying, like, look, when we get to the other side of this crisis, the economy uh, will begin to recover and Alberta needs to be poised to recover. So what do you think about that? I mean, if you're saying that the economic case for the pipelines are, doesn't make sense, but, you know, you still see governments and private sector as well continue to pour billions of dollars into these projects. You know, the economic case for this project was built on around $80 a barrel oil. You know, it it was proposed first back in 2012. Um, And I don't think anyone is expecting oil to ever reach those heights again. And tar sands producers can cut costs. Uh, That generally means cutting jobs. 
Um, but I, you know, I think anyone that takes a serious look at where the global oil market is heading knows that the highest cost producers will be priced out first. As far as us, our cost advantage in the Pacific markets, Asia is only buying our oil when it is massively cheap. Most of the oil that's being shipped through the existing Trans Mountain Pipeline is going to Washington State or California, and that's likely where all of the additional export capacity would go. Do you you think, Peter, do you think that there's a case to shut down construction of these projects to prevent the spread of the virus? I absolutely do. You know, we've already seen um, an outbreak at Curl Lake Camp uh, in the tar sands, 37 people with this virus. Um, We're talking about bringing you know, a thousand people into Vailmont, a village of a thousand people. Um, that's double the amount of people in their grocery stores. That's double the amount of people um, just in the area. And all it takes is, you know, one case, and then that becomes 37 cases very quickly. And people are, you know, coming into these camps and going out every two weeks uh, to all over the country. That's a respiratory disaster and we've already seen that play out okay Stuart, what do you say to that i mean the companies have said that they're taking they're taking precautions to stop the spread of the virus but i don't think you can ever get the risk down to zero what what about no. the case for for shutting the projects down yeah well uh, if you look at the job stats that came out a few weeks ago we don't have the current numbers up to today but we do have february to march the construction sector unlike retail and tourism accommodation that were completely gutted Construction was only down 2.6%, which tells me that it's not just this one project or Sightsee or the Coastal Gas Link or LNG Canada. There's all kinds of other uh, construction projects underway. You can drive around any city. You can you can see this is happening. Yeah. Houses are being built. And so yeah. th- th- these risks exist all over the place. It's not just Trans Mountain. And you, you know that any responsible boss, worker, is participating in you know making sure they're following sensible practices okay peter what do you say to that i mean i I think he makes a good point that there's lots of construction going on all across the country and across the province you you shut everything down where do you stop i think the question is why is this considered an essential service we are saying don't do things that aren't essential and there are lots of workers that are in these camps and and on these projects that want to go home they can't they are supported at home um, but they are being forced to come in and put their health at risk so that a pipeline company can meet its construction deadlines. And I think that's wrong. Stuart, um, Stuart what so, do you say to that? Yeah, Why is it I mean, essential? If there's, if, there's, if there's someone being forced to do something against their will, they, they have the right to not do it. But, um, I, you know, I do think that when you look at the schedule for any, any project, it doesn't matter if you're building a house or a you know, $10 billion pipeline, you've got things that are connected to each other. Thousands of actions have to happen in sequence. And you start uh, at, especially when seasonality is involved, because certain things you can't do at certain times of the year. So these these timelines are incredibly uh, linked to each other. And the problem here, I would imagine for the construction managers of anything, is that you, you go dark here in this area, and then all of a sudden you've blown the other timelines. And that's a huge problem for cost. Construction season starts now, and we cannot afford to lose another season. We cannot afford not to act right now. All right, that's Alberta Premier Jason Kenney making the case to keep building those pipelines during the pandemic outbreak. My guests are Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee, Stuart Muir from Resource Works. Your phone calls to them, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's go to your phone calls right now. Hi, Mike in Nanaimo. Hi, Mike. Yeah, hi. Yeah, no, hi, absolutely. 
keep building those pipelines for later markets. Get it done now so we're ready for later. But in any case, what would a landscape look like if we could just shut down the oil trade out of North America? And North America just takes care of itself, uh, produce what we need. And if we choose to go onto the world market with what's left over, then do so. Okay, Mike, thank you for the call. Well, this the Trans Mountain Pipeline Project is, is an export-driven project, but... Stuart, you tell me, you you make the case for me. I mean, I you heard uh, Jason Kenny say earlier, look, when we get on the other side of this thing, you're going to need these pipes in the ground if, if we expect to have a, a good, vigorous rebound economically from this thing. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, we, we rely for the, the trade surplus we've got on crude oil. It's just that simple. It's the biggest source of, of that positive trade balance that lets us nominally make all of these purchases, iPhones and orange juice and things. And so there is that uh, uh, suggestion I hear often, let's just keep it at home, serve our needs first. I think we are doing a pretty good job. There's four major refineries in the Edmonton refinery complex that supply the West. We're seeing more Canadian oil get to Montreal and, and some of those Eastern areas to serve Canadian needs, which is good. There's still quite a bit of of foreign oil that comes in from the U.S., Saudi Arabia, to supply places like the Irving Refinery that creates export benefits for Canada because they then sell refined gasoline and diesel to the United States. So that's actually a good thing. I'm not one of those who says we shouldn't have any Saudi oil. I do think there are issues with other countries not having our enlightened approach to climate and environmental protection. But that's another issue. Okay, Peter McCartney, real quickly, your thoughts on those markets? Yeah, you know, I just think uh, there are plenty of other countries that fund social programs and, you know, have functioning economies that don't have oil and gas. And Canada needs to be ready for that. Uh, We know this resource isn't going to provide for our future prosperity. And so we need a plan because what we're seeing right now is what a decline looks like without a plan. Let's go back to the phone lines and talk to Bob in Vancouver. Hi, Bob. Uh, contrary to what Peter is trying to sell the great unwashed, we're not going to be running our society on dilithium crystals anytime soon. I- I'll go right to Norway. People like Peter always hold Norway up as a great example of how things should be done. Norway have fish farming. Norway have oil tankers. Norway have offshore oil rigs. Norway have pipelines. Norway is now going to be the largest supplier of natural gas and oil to the EU. Tell me, why is Norway correct, and we're not correct, Peter, in harvesting their oil? Peter McCartney. You know, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say I agree with Norway's oil production, but the interesting thing that they did is that they had a plan. It's a publicly owned resource, and they have the world's largest sovereign wealth fund. Um, You know, every Norwegian has a million dollars behind them um, in this fund to be able to transition their economy into the next Uh, future green economy. And so they were smart about it. They said decades ago, this isn't going to last forever. We can exploit this and and we will, um, but we need to plan for the future when it's not going to be there anymore. And Alberta and Canada just have not done that. Star 9898 is the number to call toll-free on your cell. Star 9898. Back to the phone lines. Jim in Vancouver. Hi. Hi, Jim. Hi, Jim. 
Uh, hi, Mike. Uh, good show as always. Um, that last comment's kind of a little ignorant to people who don't know what's actually going on. The reason Norway has such a large sovereign fund is it's a small population country with small land mass and lots of oil. That's like saying Brunei did it smart because they've only got 300,000 people. And the other reason they have such a large sovereign fund is there aren't thieves in Ottawa taking the money and sending it to Quebec. All right, now, Peter, they- Peter, what do you say to that? Uh, Canada also has a very small population relative to the uh, resources that we have. And, you know, I think Norway's actual federally owned uh, petroleum resources is what Canada tried to do with the National Energy Program under the first Trudeau. And, you know, Alberta revolted against that. My, I still have family that won't shop at Petro-Canada because of it. So, hey, um, hey, Peter, Peter, let me ask you this. As this pipeline construction continues on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, you and I have talked before about the potential for protests, civil disobedience, people blocking the pipeline. Do you think that is still possible in the COVID-19 kind of pandemic age? I mean, we're not seeing any kind of crowds or gatherings, including protests against this pipeline. Does that make it easier to get the pipeline built, do you think? You know, I think it's interesting. People are looking at what their options are right now um, for, you know, standing in the way. Obviously, we're not going to see the kind of mass mobilizations that we've seen over the past uh, 10 years against this pipeline. But, uh, you know, I think I think there's still thousands of people here in British Columbia that don't want to see this built and are willing to do um, whatever it takes to to prevent that. And so I think you know, you will see as as construction actually starts in British Columbia, you know, more or less is only taking place in Edmonton right now. Um, you know, you're, you're going to see people stand up. Okay, Stuart Muir from ResourceWorks, as we, we take a look at the economic impact of this pandemic, it's just been brutal, the recession that we're, we're entering into. Mm. Alberta's been hit particularly hard. What is your sense or your read of the kind of... Uh, confidence in the resource sector here that we'll get through this thing and we'll have like a good sort of v-shaped uh recovery and we and we get a booming economy going quickly again is that yeah. possible yeah well, and we hear the premier talking about that he wants to see this resumption the the fact that we've had construction projects going through the the trough is is good it will make it easier to come back from it there's a lot of activity at westridge marine terminal underway if you go to it, the april 1st filing to the canadian energy regulator the Transmountain is very transparent about what they're doing. They're building the Burnaby Terminal. They're doing some work in, in Edmonton at the terminal. Apparently, they're doing some pipeline work uh, still. I haven't, not sure about that, but there's all this going on. This is one of the few bright lights in the BC economy right now in terms of those jobs. Uh, construction jobs are the highest paying or second highest paying of any industry category. So those paychecks are being brought home through these times, and that's stimulating the economy. It'll make the liftoff easier. Okay, we just got a minute left. I, that doesn't sound like peak oil, Peter, what he just described there. You were, you were speculating earlier, maybe we've seen peak oil here with uh, the, the unprecedented events we've seen, but a lot of people working still. You know, I think it's wild to me that the political and, and business leadership in this country they can't admit that this is coming. You saw Jason Kennedy get asked the other day from a Calgary reporter about a Green New Deal, like, what's, what's your plan? Oil is in negative prices. And, you know, the second that they acknowledge that this is coming, then all of the projects that they've got on the books don't make any sense anymore. And so they just have to keep going through the next quarter until, unfortunately, they will be um, forced to make that transition anyway and without a plan. So... 
All right, welcome back. Let's talk about this pandemic now and how it affects young people. Now, here's a brutal statistic for you south of the border in the United States. One poll there found that 52% of Americans under the age of 45 have either lost their job, they've been put on leave, or they've had their hours cut dramatically at work as a direct result of the coronavirus pandemic. 52% of people under 45. Now you compare that to people over the age of 45, just 26%, about half, have experienced the same job loss and loss of hours at their job as a result of the pandemic. In other words, millennials bearing the brunt of this economic crisis. Does this sound familiar? The same thing happened in the 2008 recession. Young people really took a hammering. Here we go again with this COVID-19 pandemic. Let's check in now with Dr. Paul Kershaw. He's a policy professor at UBC. He's the founder of Generation Squeeze, uh, looking at the economic impacts on young people. Paul, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. What do you think of those numbers in the United States? And are we seeing something similar here uh, in our country, too, with young people bearing the brunt of this pandemic? Well, let's be clear. From a you know, disease standpoint, young people are at the lower end of the risk uh, cycle in terms of actually coming up with serious symptoms that will result in their being in the ICU. So they can right. feel fortunate on that front. But the irony is that younger people who have lower risk of serious illness from COVID-19 are often facing the greatest financial vulnerabilities that flow from physical distancing. And that's because of the way in which our economy has transformed over the last several decades no surprise to anyone listening to your show that in our region, most young adults today are squeezed by historically high rents or really large mortgages because we've just seen home prices leave earnings behind. And those earnings for young people have actually gone down by thousands of dollars once you control for inflation compared to when today's aging population was young. In addition yeah. to that, there's been a growth in like the gig economy. That's a term people yeah. will be familiar with. And so those are the kind of more precarious and service-oriented jobs that uh, we are seeing both in Canada and in the United States um, greater losses in. And so the, the unemployment and the insecurity that is happening is disproportionately being felt by a younger demographic. And to make that matters worse, more young people have been going to post-secondary to land those less secure jobs, to land those jobs that pay less, to land jobs in contexts where they pay more for rent. And so it's been so much harder for them to put money aside for their own retirement, let alone a rainy day. And we all know that it's been really pouring economically in the pandemic. Yeah, that's a really good summary, I think, of the challenges faced by this generation here with this pandemic. I mean, you think about some of the jobs that have been lost in this economy, especially hard hit restaurants, bars, sort of front end retail. A lot of these are staffed by young people. So are they taking the brunt of the early job losses here from this pandemic? Well, I know the, the same American staff that you do. I actually don't know the degree to which um, it's exactly mapped on in Canada for the Canadian data. I promise once I do know that, that uh, I will bring that to people's attention. But I think that the hypothesis is it is playing out that way for the reasons that you just described. Young people are going to be more oriented towards those service industries, especially about students. And students, yeah. interestingly, haven't been yet captured by the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. Right. And there's going to be a new student benefit oriented towards them. And one of the things that's interesting is that the dollar value associated with it 
is less than the emergency response benefit. So people who are claiming the CERB are getting $2,000 a month. But when the benefit does become available for students, they'll only typically be eligible for about $1,250, which has mm. made me wonder, why are young adults, when they're training for our economy, less valuable than others? Um, and I think that is a question that uh, other young adults today are asking. One other thing we should think about is, as people have been adapting to the physical distancing requirements, some young people will have been lucky enough to retain their jobs, but they're all, many of them are going to be in their prime child-rearing years, and so they'll have kids at home, and as a result of the disruptions to child care and schools, then suddenly that part of our demographic is trying to figure out how to work from home and be a teacher and do child care and manage that work-life balance chaos. And so that's just wow. another layer to the difficulties that a younger demographic has been facing. Yeah, and when you think about the, the plight of students, as you mentioned, like a lot of students have got student debt that they're dealing with. A lot of them, as you mentioned, have been blocked out of the kind of the asset market. We've seen the uh, the housing affordability crisis. How many young people can afford to buy a home in this market? And now here we go with this this global recession and the the damage that's being inflicted by that. And is this kind of, would you say, Paul, this is kind of a, for this generation, kind of a double whammy? Because you go back to the last bad recession we had after the, the, the financial crisis. Man, that one, dis, that disproportionately hurt a lot of young people too, didn't it? Yeah, so there is some writing out there right now about how this is two major economic hits to young people launching within about a decade. And uh, right. so there's no doubt that that's a challenge. Younger Canadians in Canada, younger Canadians, did better than younger Americans um, because our, um, our wages for millennials actually didn't get hurt to quite the same degree as you saw in the, in the, um, the U.S. Or to put it differently, actually millennials in Canada have better earnings as young people right now than, say, Generation X who came before them. Both of those yeah. groups did worse in terms of their earnings than the boomers before them. What's interesting, though, is that the Gen X was making the lowest level of earnings as young adults, but their home prices hadn't yet surged to the same degree that home prices have surged now. And so that's, it's that gap between earnings and home prices that is so hurting a younger demographic in the contemporary context. And yeah. we just see right now how the difference between renting and owning creates so much insecurity. So as we all had to adapt amid the pandemic physical distancing, for those who have been renters, there's just that added uncertainty about, am I going to get evicted? Uh, what's going to happen if I can't pay my rent? Even if I don't pay my rent for the next few months, what's going to happen when suddenly it does become due? And that hasn't been the same dynamic for owners especially owners who don't have large mortgages, but even those who are very leveraged, we, you know, there's the opportunity to um, spread out the non-payment of mortgages over many years to come. It's not clear that that's going to happen for renters, and that's just showing how the insecurity of that tenure is being exacerbated in the current context. Speaking to Professor Paul Kershaw from UBC, he's the founder of Generation Squeeze, and we're talking about how this pandemic is putting the squeeze on young people. And you mentioned, Paul, that the kind of, I guess, sort of the bitter irony of this thing is that the COVID-19 virus seems to be having less health effect on younger people. Of course, the most damage it's inflicting is on, on older people. But what about, what about the mental health? The mental health of young people, because I, I worry about that, like young people cut off from their friends, cut off from their jobs. 
um, you know, struggling through this. Is there a mental health challenge for this generation here? Well, I think there's mental health challenges across the age groups at this stage. And there's no doubt that, you know, we know that health is more than having or not having COVID. Clearly, this is critical right now. And we all, as a society, face risks if, um, if our medical care system is swamped under the, the weight of the response to COVID-19. And we all have loved ones in our lives who are more at risk. Um, and some young people who are themselves having other kind of pre-existing conditions are going to be at the same level of risk. So there's that yeah. overarching fear about this unknown virus that is weighing on all of us. I don't think that it plays out for younger people differently than others on that front. But the economic vulnerability, the sense like, how can I launch? Or I was in the middle of launching. Yeah. Or I just got over the last difficulty of a decade ago, and I finally felt like I had a financial foundation, and now this. Yeah. And this is matters because... When we think about health and well-being, health doesn't start with our medical care system. Clearly, it's vitally important. But health actually starts where we're born. We grow, live, work, and age. Those conditions. In my field, we call it the social determinants of health. And those determinants have been hit again by the pandemic and our economic response to the pandemic. But there's a little bit of hope that I take from it. The hope I take right now is that in my life, I have never seen governments respond to emergency in the way that we're looking at right now. And we are, on the one hand, responding to a virus, but we've also made these historic adaptations to the economic side with these emergency response benefits and the wage subsidy that's actually got started today in Canada. And so these show new opportunities for us to imagine working together as neighbors and as citizens of Canada say, how might we use policy going forward to file down the sharpest edges of our economy so that when we get on the other side of this pandemic and we return to sort of some new normal and the, the, the challenges and inequalities that existed then, we might actually be able to think about using policy to take off those sharpest edges and help address some of the tensions that had existed prior to the pandemic. So what's a uh, guaranteed basic income? Well, some have talked in that way, but I, whether you go all the way to a guaranteed basic income, which, by the way, we should remember, we have that already for seniors. It's called the, uh, <clears throat> it's part of the old age security system. Yeah. So you might think about extending that down as a way to just address poverty. But more generally, might uh, think about it's been really hard for pe- young people to be both parents and in the labor market when childcare still costs another rent size payment. Uh, we could think about no longer allowing that to be the case. I've never seen such attention to how childcare is such a major economic driver as we've witnessed over the last six weeks. Similarly, you might you might think about those who are in the gig economy not having sick days in their jobs and whatnot. We might be addressing those kinds of issues. So there's ways for us to use public policy to soften around the edges some of the sharper ways in which the economy has been cutting some ways for some people and not so favorably for others. All right, welcome back, Mike Smith, as we continue talking about the impact of the pandemic on young people. My guest, Dr. Paul Kershaw, UBC, founder of Generation Squeeze. Call me on this, 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Would you say, Paul, that we're seeing a sort of a sharper generational divide in our country now with as a result of this pandemic as maybe young people feel frustrated that they, they seem to be taking a lot of the economic brunt of this pandemic while it's maybe an older generation that are getting sick from it largely D- does it fuel a kind of a generation gap not uh, in fact right now one of the 
remarkable things that I observe is actually a, a tremendous amount of intergenerational solidarity, which is wonderful. I think you do see a genuine expression of concern for our aging uh, family members, our loved ones, especially in care facilities. And so this is actually renewing attention about the, um, you know, the biological frailty that comes with being older and especially with uh, our loved ones who are in care facilities. Uh, I hope going forward there is going to be a new orientation around wanting to make sure that the people in those facilities are well cared for, which will actually mean um, investing more in the people doing the caregiving, the nurses and other care workers and yeah. cleaners in those spaces. So, so far, I actually think that this moment uh, has been good for solidifying intergenerational solidarity. Of course, as the pandemic if it carries on and the requirements of physical distancing require more and more economic disruption, we, we might start to see some frustration set in, but you can't say right now that our governments in Canada haven't tried to both address the health and economic issues. Yeah. Had the physical distancing gone on without putting in place things like the wage subsidy and emergency response benefit and in BC, something like the rent supplement, then I think you would have seen a lot of intergenerational tension unfold right away. But we've done okay. quite a bit with public policy. 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's go to the phone lines now and talk to J.D. calling in from Surrey. Hi, J.D. Hey, guys. Uh, Mike, love the show. Uh, professor, uh, thank you for all your work. Um, why does a student that doesn't have a mortgage of uh, almost $5,000 and supporting two kids and all the other bills need the 2000 that I'm getting, which is less than half of my mortgage. Uh, and I appreciate the student, the, all the students. I was one, but uh, come on, what's, what's going on? <laughs> well, you, you say what the help is not enough. Is that what you're saying? Well, the help is, is not enough and I appreciate yeah. it, but it's not enough. Uh, you know, I'm out of work. I'm doing the best I can. Um, yeah. And students just don't have the same overhead that other families do. And they're really wanting, I guess, pushing for the same amount that I'm getting. And I appreciate everybody wants it. Everybody needs it. But I need more <laughs> than, than they do, typically. <laughs> okay, we got a couple of minutes left here, Paul. Well, right now, the government actually agrees with you, J.D. So they have only allocated a student, I think, 1250 a month compared to the 2000 I think you're pointing out that the 2000 is not enough for someone trying to raise multiple kids, especially in our you know, expensive markets. And um, today's wage subsidy, which... Uh, if, it, if you are associated with a company that might be able to make that open to you, would start to be more like 3800 a month. All of it is raising these questions about when, when anyone falls on hard times, you know, what is the sort of baseline of our social safety nets? And, you know, how do we organize that for different groups? So, J.D., you're, you're putting that, you know, that important nuance out there. Um, and I more generally just want to say I feel for you in this context of raising your kids and being out of work, et cetera, and, and okay. I just want to wish you the best. We just got one minute left here, Dr. Kershaw. Do you think that this event will tilt the country's politics to the left as young people look for maybe more help from government? We talked earlier about a basic annual income, which seems to be a, key, a, a, a very current debate whether we should go that way. We see support south of the border for a guy like Bernie Sanders, who's a self-described social, socialist or social democrat. Are we going to tilt the, is the country tilting left here? 30 seconds. 
The answer is I think we are reimagining how we will organize our capitalist economies going forward. And I talked earlier about how we may soften some of the sharper edges. I do think there's probably a growing appetite for that politically across all age groups. And as we do that, the next big thing we're also going to have to tackle is the fact that climate change remains actually the greatest threat to human health going forward. And we've seen remarkable reductions to climate change, uh, fossil fuel emissions lately. And so we'll think about how that factors into our economy going forward, too. Thanks for your time today. You're most welcome. Have a great day.